0: Exodus chapter 15, beginning in verse one. Let's give our attention now to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his chariot he has thrown into the sea The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand They are still as a stone till your people, O oh Lord, pass by, To the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will redeem them, excuse me, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O oh Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O oh Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. And Miriam sang with them, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his chariot he has thrown into the sea. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. Oh God, we are so thankful for your word. Thankful that you've given it to us through your chosen servants, that it has been passed down through the ages, even now, that we might hold it in our hands or that we might hear it, read it in a language that is familiar to us. But we come to you now, God, and ask that you would give us more than physical hearing and understanding. God, that you would open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things, that your spirit would be at work in our hearts through the preached word, that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, that we might be made more into his image, that you, O God, would convict us of sin. God, that you would grant us repentance. Oh God, that you would help us, comfort us, strengthen us, establish us. Father, I pray as well that you would help me Lord, that you would sustain me this morning, but that you would also, oh Lord, be gracious to me. Protect me from error. Oh Lord, you are good. You are our God. And we rejoice at your work. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are moments in life, moments in life when you are completely overwhelmed with emotion, overtaken by all the feels, right? Just overwhelmed with emotion. Moments so marvelous and so magnificent that you are left unable to contain those feelings. Even the strongest square-chinned guy, there are those times when you just can't contain your emotions. Like an explosion, you find yourself bursting out in joyful praise. I've experienced many moments like that in my life. I know you're not surprised, pretty emotional guy. The most recent one was two days ago. I just pulled my car into the garage after a quick meeting Friday morning When I noticed a text from one of our elders come across my car's display, this is what it said. Brothers, the evil of Roe versus Wade has been overturned. My response was immediate. (laughs) I'm glad the car was parked in the garage. (laughs) Streams of tears poured down my face. Words of praise sprung out from my mouth. I think it was 10 minutes, it doesn't matter how long, but there I sit in my car, in the garage, having a worship service. I worshiped, I sang, I recited scripture and I prayed. God had done a marvelous and magnificent thing and I knew that he alone was worthy of all the glory and all the praise and all the honor and so I praised. Last week, in Exodus chapters 13 and 14, we had front row seats to one of God's earliest, marvelous and magnificent works on behalf of his people. God had delivered Israel out from their bondage in Egypt with his mighty hand and he had led them to the shores now along a hard road to the Red Sea, though the mighty chariots of Pharaoh were on hot pursuit to overcome them and they they saw them coming, what did God do? God parted the waters and Israel crossed. They crossed over the Red Sea on dry land. Once they made it through, what happened? The waters returned and Egypt's army was destroyed. After a little more than 400 years, the Lord had finally redeemed his people just as he had promised. And then how do the people respond? How do the people of Israel respond? If you go back to chapter 14, look at verse 31. We get two of three responses. First, it says that the people feared the Lord. Wouldn't you? The people were in awe of God's presence and God's power. Secondly, it says that the people believed. They believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. The people put their faith in the Lord and in the message and ministry of his word. Those are two of three of their responses. The third response is found in chapter 15, verse one. And the sense in the original language is that there is no break between these verses. Your your chapter and verse things are not inspired. Okay, those were added later. Next, the very next thing, there's no break, there's no delay. Look at verse one, you'll see the third response. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. Such A marvelous and magnificent moment evokes an explosion of praise. What follows that we read is commonly called the Song of Moses. There are a few ways that we could break down this song to study it. We could look at it thematically. If we were to do that, the song can be studied in two parts. Verses 1 through 12 Deal with the Exodus event itself. In verses 13 through 18, deal with the future conquest of the promised land of Canaan. We can look at it thematically. We could look at it poetically. If we did that, the song can be broken into three stanzas. Verses 1 through 6, verses 7 through 11, and verses 12 through 18. I like that. It's got three points. Okay, three stanzas. But like most songs, it's got an epilogue in verses 17 and 18 and then a refrain in 19 through 21. We could study it poetically. It is poetry. But for our sake this morning, I don't want to consider it necessarily thematically or as a unit of poetry. I want us to consider the Song of Moses in a more reflective manner, maybe experiential manner. I want us to see this song for its pure simplicity and its glorious beauty. For no matter how you break down its structure, it remains this. The song of Moses is a song of redemption to the Redeemer by those whom he redeemed. Simple. A song of redemption To the Redeemer by those whom he redeemed. So, if you're taking notes, first of all, we see that the Song of Moses is a song of redemption. The Song of Moses is a song of redemption. I find it fitting that the very first recorded song in the history of God's people, because that's what this is. This is the first recorded song in the history of God's people, is a song of redemption. The song itself has as its major key the theme of deliverance. The song is about deliverance. It recounts God's mighty acts to rescue his people from their bondage to slavery. And woven throughout each and every verse that follows is a focus that begins actually in the very first words. It starts, I will sing to the Lord. Why? For he has triumphed gloriously. The Lord has triumphed gloriously. But how? Look at verse two. The horse and its rider or chariot, he has thrown into the sea, it says. Verse four. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. Look at verse 6. His right hand shatters the enemy. Verse 7. You, speaking to God, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. Verse 8. At the blast of your nostrils, when God sneezed, the waters piled up. It's the same word there. The blast of his nostrils, the water piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. Verse 10 You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. How has God triumphed gloriously? Verse 12 You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. How else? Verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love. You have guided them by your strength. Verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on your mountain. Behold what the Lord has done. He has redeemed his people. He's bought them back. He's claimed them, delivered them, rescued them, As his own. He has triumphed gloriously, the opposite of meekly. He has triumphed gloriously with a strong and mighty hand, with visible signs and wonders, with miracles of miracles. He has delivered his people out. He is victorious. God has soundly defeated these false gods of Egypt. God has won the victory. And great victories such as this deserve great songs. Great victories deserve great songs. Most of you are familiar with the Star-Spangled Banner. That's our country's national anthem. It was written by a man named Francis Scott Key as he was a few miles offshore. He was aboard a ship. He's looking on during England's bombardment of Fort McHenry in Baltimore Harbor that had begun on September 13th, 1814. He sees the rocket's red glare as that American fort is being pounded by the British. At dawn's early light on September 14th, he could see something there over Fort McHenry. You know what he saw? He saw the star-spangled banner. He saw the flag still waving over the fort. They were asking all night, will the fort survive? The fort had survived. So in joyful response, he penned the song that would much later become our national anthem. You know it, so I'll spare you and I won't sing it. That's a tough one to sing, by the way. But you know it. Well, you know one of its verses. Did you know that the song has four verses? Yeah, we sing the first verse as our national anthem, but it has four verses. Listen to the lyrics of the fourth verse. Oh, thus be it ever when free men shall stand between their loved home and the war's desolation, blessed with victory and peace, May the heaven-rescued land praise the power of God that have made and preserved us a nation. Then conquer we must when our cause it is just, and this be our motto, In God is our trust. And the star-spangled banner in triumph shall wave, or the land of the free and the home of the brave. Imagine hearing that at the next ball game. Great victories deserve great songs. If it's true for the war of 1812, or true after your team wins a big game and you sing the alma mater, or true when the Supreme Court makes a ruling that upholds justice for the unborn, how much more, how much more true should it be That a great victory of redemption, such as what Israel has experienced, also deserves a great song. A great song of great redemption. And so we see that the song of Moses is indeed such a song. It's a song of redemption, a great song of praise for a great deliverance. But it is also a song of redemption that is sung to the one who had redeemed them. That's our second point this morning. The song of Moses is a song to the Redeemer. It's very clear, you probably noticed as we read, that the song of Moses has as its subject the Lord himself. We saw it in the previous point, right? The, The Lord had done marvelous and magnificent things to accomplish the redemption of his people. The Lord alone is the redeemer. But this song does not just speak of what the Lord has done. It doesn't just speak of his acts. It also speaks to his very nature and his very character. Verse 3 tells us that the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is a man of war. He is the God who is active and present in the lives of his people. He does not remain far off in the distant, watching and waiting for them to deliver themselves. No, he is the God who takes up the sword and fights for his people. He's the God who takes up the cross as his son, Jesus Christ, took up the cross and died for his people. Verse 11 tells of God's transcendence. It tells of his incomprehensibility. that's the big theological word. just it's right there in front of your text. "Who's like you, O Lord? We can't fully understand. He's incomprehensible completely. We know what we know from the Word. From what He's revealed, and that's it. Who knows the mind of the Lord? Who can discern His ways? Who is like you, O Lord? The song also tells of his majesty, his sovereignty, his kingly reign over all creation. Notice it says "and he is majestic and he's awesome in his glorious deeds. It also tells of his holiness. God is holy. He's altogether pure and righteous. These things are also repeated in verses 17 and 18. We look at verse 13. The song also tells of God's eminence. It says that God leads his people in steadfast love. Steadfast love is God's unbreakable covenant love. In Hebrew, it says chesed, his covenant love. He's drawn near in relationship with his people and he does not break his covenant promises. Have we not heard this over and over again? What he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has come true. Will continue to come true. Verse 13 also tells of his presence among his people. It says that he guided them. Remember the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire? God has guided them by his strength to his holy abode. There's surely more there that we could uncover of God's character and nature. But I hope you can see very clearly that the subject of this song is no doubt. God himself. It is a song that is to be sung to the Redeemer. And some of you are thinking, yeah, duh. Pastor Dan, why are you hitting that nail? Isn't it clear enough? Well, turn with me to Exodus chapter 32. Later this year, we'll We'll come to this passage and exposit it in a more full, but I think it's important for us to see a point here. Exodus 32, we're gonna look at verses one through six. Moses is up on Mount Sinai meeting with the Lord. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And then the people of Israel said, these are your gods. These are your gods, O Israel, the gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. Now fast forward to verse 15. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, the the Ten Commandments. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. Then Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, and he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But Moses said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory, or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing sound of worship that I hear. What happened? What happened? How had the people so quickly forgotten? How did they go from singing to the Redeemer who brought them up out of the land of Egypt to singing to a golden calf? That they're now proclaiming is the Lord who brought them up out of the land of Egypt, a false redeemer. How do they go from that to that? And everyone says, Sin. Sin. Plain and simple. Sinful hearts of sinful people. How prone we are to make something else the subject of our songs of redemption. It might not be golden calves today, but a quick tour of prosperity gospel mania tabernacles and big evangelical concert venue churches will yield an awful presence of songs directed towards the gifts that God gives and directed towards the emotions of the people that receive them rather than the presence of songs that magnify and exalt the God who alone is worthy of all praise and honor and glory. Well, it's not an indictment on contemporary worship music. It's not a glorification of traditional worship music either. Each has their fair share of bad theology. What I'm talking about is content. To whom do we sing? To whom do we sing or what do we sing? To whom do we sing of what do we sing the song of Moses is clearly sung to the Lord in praise of the redemption that he has accomplished. It should not surprise us at all that the first recorded praise song, the first recorded worship song in the Bible sits a really good tone for every song that will ever follow it. Even so, I want to point out one last thing about the Song of Moses. Sure, it's a song of redemption. It's directed to the Redeemer himself. But I don't want you to forget who is singing it. It is being sung by those whom he redeemed. The Song of Moses is a song being sung by those whom he redeemed. That's our third and final point. The Song of Moses is intensely personal, while at the same time remarkably corporate. You know, in in reformed circles, first person personal pronouns often get a bad rap. It's not uncommon to hear a curmudgeonly voice say, and I'll try to say it curmudgeonly because I'm kind of a curmudgeon sometimes, I don't want any of that me, myself, and I and my worship music. Okay, fair enough. Thanks for telling me what you want. But look at Exodus 15.2. Look at Exodus 15.2. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Did you hear all that? my strength, my song, my salvation, my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. That sounds intensely personal to me. How about you? You see, even though God had redeemed an entire people, remember, likely close to 2 million, 600,000 men, and if you would count all the women and children with him, Likely two million people, though he had redeemed all of them and they are now singing all together corporately. It's amazing how this happened, right? They're singing together corporately. It remains intensely personal, though. Each unique, independent soul had experienced that magnificent and marvelous moment. And they got to do it together. Individuals together experience this. So it's fitting that they would join their individual voices as one voice to share in a, both a personal and corporate song. Please don't miss this. The song of Moses is intensely personal. It's an explosion of praise that acknowledges not only a, a covenant love that extends to a whole group of people, but also an explosion of personal praise that acknowledges an intimate and personal covenant love that redeems individual persons from their bondage. This is just as much Israel's song as it is Moses' song, and Aaron's song, and Miriam's song an insert name, here's song. Millions of voices united together, singing of God's great salvation for me. This is my story. This is my song praising my Savior all the day long. And all those voices come together as one voice. What a wonderful and breathtaking scene that must have been. What a celebration. I often long for time travel. Um, Probably for not the things maybe you would think I'd wanna time travel to. Some glory days of Cardinal baseball I wouldn't mind going back to, but I think it would be neat to show up here and see this. I mean, what an amazing celebration this must have been. I'd like to go back there, but I can't. Some of you say, yet? No, I can't. But you know what? I will get to sing it with them one day. I'll get to join in something even more marvelous and beautiful and wonderful. In fact, if you're in Christ this morning, each and every one of you will join with me and all the saints of old, and we're gonna sing the song of Moses together. One day. How do I know? Turn to the end. Turn to the end. Go to Revelation chapter 15, verses two through four. We went through the book of Revelation together in 2020 and 2021. I made the case for you that Revelation lays out for us seven cycles of all of redemptive history. So rather than it being a puzzle book, it's a picture book. And here in one of those pictures of the time of redemptive history, we get a glimpse into the worship of heaven as God's people are all gathered around the glassy sea. And if you remember, the glassy sea is before the throne of God. I want you to look in chapter 15 of Revelation, beginning in verse 2. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. That's those who've overcome through Jesus. That's the Christians. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. We'll sing together the song of Moses. Brothers and sisters, living on this side of the cross in redemptive history, living where we live now, awaiting the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, we know an even greater deliverance than the Israelites knew. For we've been delivered from an enemy far greater than the Egyptian army. The Lord Jesus has redeemed us. He's redeemed us with his precious blood. Did you hear this morning the words of assurance from Colossians 1 printed there in your bulletin? Go back and look. God has delivered us from what? From the domain of darkness and he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption. We've been redeemed, it's a song of redemption. We've been forgiven our sins. The shackles of sin and death have been broken and we're set free in Christ Jesus. Free to live, free to love, free to sing to sing songs of redemption to the one who has redeemed us. And one glorious day, one glorious future day, when we are finally delivered from this life through death, we will indeed join those multitude of voices around the glassy sea before God's throne, and we will sing anew the song of Moses and many, many, many other songs. I can't wait. I can't wait. So until that day, may this day and each and every day before us be filled with explosions of praise at the marvelous and magnificent works of God. From the work of salvation to his ongoing works of justice and righteousness and grace and mercy that he carries out in the world in which we live for every mighty work of providence that God does. May our hearts and our voices never cease to flow with endless praise. May we sing to the Lord, for he has most certainly triumphed gloriously. Amen and amen.